Hello there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. Once again, you're joined by myself, Callum Roper, joined by Ollie Walwyn. Hello, everyone. Ewan Hodgson. Hello, hello. Uh, Mr. Callum Watt. Good afternoon. And Bradley Allsop. Hi, folks. So we're here again looking to bring the take on the week's news, some of the ongoings. It's been, once again, a busy week. So after weeks and weeks and months of COVID and COVID and more COVID, we've now got some political talk going on and we've had conferences in the last week from the two major political parties. So we'll get straight into that. And the announcement from Priti Patel in the... Uh, at the uh, the Tory conference in the last couple of days was that they're looking at reviewing the asylum system in the United Kingdom. This comes only days after we see leaked plans or alleged plans. Certainly they were, they were brainstormed uh, government plans to send migrants, refugees to somewhere offshore in the Atlantic, looking to find alternative locations for migrants coming to this country, obviously in a reaction to the migrant crisis, or at least what is seen by certain commentators as a crisis for the, that this country faces. Now, we're not exactly clear what these reforms that Patel has put forward, but she's promised stringent changes to the migrant system, to how we process refugees, to how we deal with them. She says that it's fundamentally flawed the system itself is broken. Now, we, we had a uh, conversation before we went on air about this, and a lot of us agreed that actually the system is flawed, but not how the Tories would consider it to be flawed. Bradley, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, uh, I mean, a, a review of the asylum system is, is certainly uh, welcome, but but like you say, I, I suggest, I suspect the, the Tories want to do this for very different reasons um, than, than perhaps what what we and, and people on the left might, might want them to do it for. Um, you know, so, some of this stuff we're, we're hearing, uh, I mean, this has been going on all summer, hasn't it, really? So, you know, Farage is, is, is bored in his retirement, clearly, um, and, and bored in lockdown, maybe, so he, he sits on the beaches. I don't know if he imagines himself sort of at Normandy or something like that, yeah, you know, D-Day. Um, but he, he sits there on the beaches, uh, guarding our great nation with, with his video camera. Um and then he he he's sort of gone into uh, hotels as well, hasn't he? So there's certain hotels where where um, people that have recently entered the, entered the country are housed, and you know he he sort of you know try, tried to I don't know sort of catch them out as if like they were doing something wrong, but they weren't. They were just in a hotel, so mind your own business. Um, but you know, it, so it's it sort of I think been spiked by that, and I think the government are very are very eager to to sort of make more of a thing out of this than there actually is. Um, because it distracts away from their multiple failures and U-turns um, on COVID and, and the debacle that is, um, you know, an outbreak in international law um, over Brexit as well. So I, I think the government are all too happy to, to talk about a migrant crisis and to top it up um, any chance they get. So I, I think Farage has helped them enormously over the summer to, to do that. Um, yeah, and, and the stuff we've seen is, is I mean, some of, some of it's just, you know, silly really isn't it it's really small numbers that we get if you look at most of the major european countries um, and and certainly if you look at countries bordering where where a lot of these migrants are coming from the amount of migrants we take in are, are tiny um, compared to a lot of the countries and um, so uh, you know it, it, it's it's a ridiculous idea that we we just can't cope 
with the amount of migrants that are coming in. If, if that's true, then there's some serious issues with, with how the country's being run. Uh, and, and, you know, now this latest idea from, from uh, Priti Patel of, of ha- housing migrants offshore, you know, an offshore island, I think, I think what Warren's suggestion was, was an island, you know, thousands of miles away. Um, it, it's barbaric, isn't it? Um, it, it, it? It's just, it's sad and bizarre where, where the debate is around mi- migration in this country. Um, I, I think what's more disappointing is that, I mean, I think, you know, in fairness to them, Labour sort of came out against this offshore detention centre sort of idea. You know, they, they've, they've hit back at it a little bit. Um, but I think in general, Labour, e- even under Corbyn, um, to some degree, um, has failed to, to properly stand up on migrants and really challenge the, the, the narrative around migration um, that, that's dominant in the press. Um, and and I, I don't think we're going to see a change in the conversation until Labour is willing to, to stand by migrants and, and, and really challenge the, the narrative that we're too full, uh, you know, these people shouldn't be coming over here um, and all the rest of it. Yeah, and I, I think one of the striking things I saw in reaction to this this week was from a, uh, was from a, a doctor in the NHS who said that had my family been sent to an island the minute I got here, I wouldn't be saving lives during the crisis we find ourselves in now. So I think that that's, that's really quite poignant and it, and it really strikes out to me there as, as why we can't do this. Yeah. Uh, Ollie, you wanted to come in. Yes, um, I, I think those are some great points there. Um, it just makes me wonder who, who, where the, the mandate for this is coming from. Um, because I've I've heard that um, for cl- sources close to Dominic Cummings have, have been saying that um, he is he is kind of obsessed with the Channel Crossing and he's obsessed with the the migrant crisis he, as he calls it. Um, like he wants to use uh, water cannons on, on people coming from from different shores. I think it does go back to um, the way that that Farage has whipped up this storm time and time again. It's like it's like Cummings has seen these videos. That he posts of, of of migrants in hotel rooms on social media, and that's that's kind of where he's getting these ideas from. And it's like every every Tory minister wants to appease Cummings because he is kind of the the supreme overlord as such, unelected it's, as he is. It's the it's the culture war though, isn't it? it? It's it's a very deliberate tactic, but by Trump, I think pioneered it in terms of Western politics. Um, but but you see Johnson and his government do it as well. You know they're leaning into this idea of a, of a culture war because they they can't really win the economic arguments. I think you know the idea of austerity is sort of dead now, and and, and uh, I, I think the Corbyn project did, did challenge austerity quite well, and I think it did shift public debate to so not not decisively maybe, but to some degree that you know it, it shifted the conversation around public services and, and, and maybe tax rises for the rich and things like that. Um, but I, I, I think Boris is, is very deliberately leading to this, this sort of culture war that you're seeing in, in a really grotesque way in America. I, I think they're trying to bring that here to Britain because they, they think they can poach voters off Labour. If they, if they force Labour to have to talk about Brexit or, uh, you know, whether um, national anthem should be played at the proms and all this sort of rubbish, they, they think they can sort of sneak at Labour and, and, and keep taking uh, votes off them in that way. So I think, I think that's why they're doing it. That, that's that's what they want. You know, and it, it, it's such a cynical strategy because it's so bereft of any, you know, actual ideology or or actual meaningful, tangible politics that can change people's lives. It's all it's all just nonsense. It is so fabricated. 
um, this this migrant crisis or invasion of as we've heard the term use. It's it's a few thousand people turning up a year on our on our shores, having escaped some awful circumstances in the Middle East. And, and you're right, Bradley. We need to talk about how we're not even taking our fair share of refugees, especially compared to countries like Germany and France. And we need to keep talking about that because it continues to be a big part of of the ideology that the Tories are churning out. Um, grounds that Starmer rejected the ideas for this uh, offshore detention centre weren't actually based on the fact that um, it, it wasn't viable because it's completely inhumane and, and absurd as a policy. It was because it was unviable economically. And um, I, I think that's not, not a great way of, of uh, condemning these ideas, really. Yeah. Um, so Ewan and Callum. Uh, I think one of the things about this um, kind of offshore detention centre center is it's been around for a while. It's not a new idea. Like I mentioned before the podcast that like new Labour was like pitching this as like an idea. And then the Tories at the exact same time were also saying, well, no, our offshore detention centre idea is a lot better. So it's not a new idea. Um, but the main thing is, it's like, now it actually has a government that actually would properly back it. Like, New Labour um, kind of often did lean to the right on certain issues, but it did in a very kind of like, you know, the whole thing about triangulation and stuff. They never really, like a lot of things, they said they were going to do it, and then they didn't. Whilst we have a government here who is very willing to put uh, migrants in offshore detention centres and treat them horribly and do in Australia... Um, because they know that will win them voters. They know that that will appeal to their kind of social conservative kind of kind of a group of voters who have been probably complaining about this for like years. These are probably the people that like um, were angry at uh, David Cameron for being more socially liberal than they wanted to, you know, him to be, and so therefore voted for like UKIP and stuff in twenty fifteen. So it very much is like a government that's very kind of very very cynically trying to appeal to the base and they can know that they can bang the drum of immigration and know that if they do this thing, it doesn't matter if it, you know, Starmer mentioned it being, you know, not viable economically. It doesn't matter to them. Uh, ideas of like, you know, trying to treat people fairly doesn't matter to them to the same degree as like, you know, Labour would. So this is very much very cynical and it's a kind of classic, you know, bang the right-wing populist drum because it's what gets them votes. Yeah. And Callum, you wanted to come in as well. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past this government, sorry, I wouldn't put it past this government actually to uh, convert perhaps uh, the Jersey and Guernsey islands to uh, the use of the immigration detention centres. I mean, it makes sense. They're close to France. Uh, we joked before recording that they might try and use uh, the Isle of Wight like they used for the COVID test, uh, the, the COVID tracing app. But then um, I looked it up and I realised that the Isle of Wight is actually a Conservative seat in Parliament. So they probably won't do that. Um, whereas uh, Jersey and Guernsey, they're, uh, they're um, overseas territories, I think. So uh, they don't count. Um and, and therefore, they're more likely to set them up there. That's my prediction. And of course, the irony of that, of course, would be that uh, once upon a time, um, many 
British citizens were detained there under uh, another fascist uh, government once upon a time um, and were also ignored by the British government uh, during the Second World War. The Great Invasion Fleet just sort of sailed past them um, and and waited to liberate them later. Um, But... uh, in terms of Labour's response to it, I mean, we said before, you know, Jeremy Corbyn dealt with this issue very well, uh, mainly by just changing the subject uh, onto people's more material concerns. Uh, the reason why immigration was allowed to rise as an issue is because we allowed it to. Um, we indulged it for many, many years. Um, and then in 2015, uh, the, the rhetoric about immigration didn't stop, but it dropped off the top of the agenda. Um, and it did that because actually people are more concerned about, you know, housing and jobs and healthcare and so on. Um, and that will trump for most sensible people, not the one third um, that vo- always votes conservative um, and, the, and their sympathisers. For most people, it will trump other uh, other concerns, and uh, Keir Starmer needs to do that more, much more strongly than he's doing at the moment. Um, and the, str- the trouble is, though, that uh, a lot of the people that surround him now are the same people who were uh, advising Ed Miliband uh, and uh, were in in Tony Blair's camp before then. So um, I'm skeptical of their ability to turn that around, but you know, maybe with some influence from the membership. Um, and, and some good critique on the part of people like us and other people with much more influence than we do. Uh, perhaps that can be turned around, but objectively, that's what needs to be done. He needs to focus on more material concerns and his 10 pledges. Absolutely. And that leads us on nicely into our next section of the podcast. And Ewan wanted to take a bit of a lead on this. Uh, and it's about Starmer and his 10 pledges. Uh, do you want to take it away? Yes. So. During Starmer's leadership election, um, in a very kind of like way to kind of appeal to both Corbynites, but also, you know, to appeal to the Remainers, because that was his big thing, he released 10 pledges, which were kind of very, kind of Corbynesque, like not entirely, but quite, you know, uh, so they include such things as like, you know, economic justice was one of them, so that's like increasing income tax for about, you know, the top 5% of earners, um, like promoting, you know, human rights, which included no more illegal wars. That was one of the big ones, which was to appeal uh, to, you know, the kind of no more rack kind of crowd. Um, the Green New Deal, that was a big one. And very importantly to what was just been discussing, uh, defending it, uh, migrants' rights, which was, you know, it was allowing, like helping EU nationals get, voting rights, it was to defend free movement, uh, but also it was to reform the immigration system to not be something that, as mentioned, is like Patel Island kind of thing. Um, and it's kind of very interesting because recently he had to defend himself on actually still um, doing the 10 pledges because Lisa Nandy went on BBC Radio 4 and kind of said no Starmer isn't but doesn't believe in public ownership anymore he's gonna you know not do all that and that kind of thing and so he had to kind of very rapidly come out and say no I am still committing to my pledges 
So it's very interesting, particularly with the migrants' rights one, um, how he's kind of turned it less from a kind of like, no, we should be, you know, believe in the ideas of, you know, um, all immigrants are equal, you know, we should treat them fairly. Um, it's very interesting that he didn't say that was his point for why he didn't like the island. It was that he didn't believe it was economically viable. And the, I have a strong feeling it's probably that he's trying to like uh, square the circle that he has a problem with in that he still has to try and appeal to the kind of more socially conservative um, kind of like East Midlands, like Midlands, Northern seats that we lost in last election also still trying to like appeal to the London seats and he has to try and square that hole as it were um, square that circle so that's that's what kind of 10 pledges have been it's interesting yeah and just on that really we've spoken about it before on the podcast do you think that by effectively trying to beat the Tories at their own game in, in talking about immigration so so very much high up on the agenda do you think that that's actually going to pay off for Starmer, or is it actually just going to play into the hands of the Tories who prefer this sort of dialogue and this sort of um, conversation of division, sowing that hatred towards other people? I would say that Starmer um, has a very fine road to walk because Labour remembers only just five years ago the very infamous um, control and immigration mugs, uh, which have become kind of a meme amongst the Labour left of kind of pointing out how awkward and bad um, kind of the Ed Miliband years were in terms of like trying to commit to any form of policy. Um, so I think there's still that memory. And I think Stelma has to, I think what Stelma's trying to do is he's trying to avoid the whole kind of like, kind of, you know, control and immigration, let's try and, you know, keep our borders closed kind of rhetoric, which was used to try and uh, neuter UKIP and stuff. But he also has to try and not look like he's going to, you know, to certain kind of people, open the floodgates and let in all these, you know, people who will come in and swarm our jobs somehow um, kind of rhetoric. So he has to he has a very fine line that he has to play. And I can see why I did go with the kind of economic argument, because it's quite cold and impersonal. Yes, but also it's like, you know, if you're Joe Bloggs, wherever, and you, you know, you say, well, you have a choice here. We can open an immigration centre in the Atlantic or we can spend money like getting you, you know, jobs somewhere, you know, getting a job that you want or whatever. We can spend more money in your area and make it all nice and better. I think most people will probably be like, well, I'd rather my local, you know, local town looks nice or my county looks nice or whatever, you know, or, or you know, I, I have a job or, you know. So I think if, if they... Focus more on kind of like, and I know this sounds incredibly cynical, but if they focus more on making it like almost kind of incredibly unimpassioned, like, you know, no passion to the argument, because that's what the Tories want. They want passion and, you know, because they can bring the passion on this. But if Starmer takes the passion out of it, I think it will kind of be less of an argument that you can use against him. Because you know, people don't care if it's not passionate, but if you do have some form of passion with it, then I think you can, the argument can go a lot further than actually is, if that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, Bradley, you wanted to come back on that? I, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you here, Ewan, because I think that there's a real precedent for what 
you, I think you're right in what Simon's trying, what you think Simon's trying to do, but I, I don't think it's going to work because the precedent is is Brexit. Yeah, we we had a very yeah a very economic focused, very sensible, logical, not very passionate argument made for Remain, and and it failed. And and the, and the Leave side had all the passion. You know, I, I I don't think you can try and take passion out of politics. I think if you start to try and do that, you you're in a lot of trouble. And at the moment, the the Tories are very willing to make a very you know to to tap into the those fears and and, and worries and angers around migrants. Um, and and it will serve them well. It, it will get them. You know, it, they won't get the whole of the, the majority of the public on their side, but they'll get enough to to keep seats and, and to keep winning seats and to keep troubling Labour in in, in certain seats that, that Labour might want to get back. Um, I, I think you know. I think it was Ash Shikabe this point in the Bar Media that if if Brexit's taught us anything, it's that people are willing to take an economic hit if it means getting rid of migrants. Um, so I, I actually think Starmer focusing on, so, oh, you know, it, it, the cost of these ascension centres, why don't we spend them somewhere else? I think we've seen that that argument doesn't work. Brexit has told us that people people will take an economic hit. if it, You know, so, so enough people, a, a worrying percentage of the population will make that sacrifice if it means getting rid of migrants. Um, so so I think trying to, trying to distract away from it and, and trying to talk about other things or, or try, trying to make it a non-issue, I don't think any of that's going to work. I, I think we have to... Um, we, that, that means actually we've got two choices, doesn't it? It means we sell migrants under the bus, we, we chuck them under the bus and, and, and don't defend their rights and, and try and out Tory the Tories on it, um, which, I, which I, you know, set aside all the moral arguments about why that's a, a horrible thing to do. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the thing I've never understood about trying to make the Tories halfway on policy is if people agree, you know, if, pe- if people don't like migrants, why would they vote Labour? Why wouldn't they just vote Tory if, if that's a really important issue to them? Um, the the second point is you know the second option is uh, we we make a, pa- a passionate um, d- defence of migration, all the benefits it brings to society, all the moral arguments in favour of, of freedom of movement, um, and and all the moral arguments in in favour of, of treating fellow human beings in, in a decent and humane manner that come to this country. Uh, I think that's the only option available to us, and then we have to package that obviously with with, with all the economic justice arguments as well. I think that's the only option in front of us. Um, I think broadly we sort of did that in 2017. I think the Corbyn project was was weak on migrant rights, um, weaker than it should have been at times. But but broadly we we almost came to, to power in the 2017 under that sort of that sort of messaging. So uh, I think that really is the only option for Labour in the long term if it if it's going to beat the Tories in this area. Um, and sadly, I don't think Starmer is going to do it. Yeah, you and you wanted to come back again. Yeah, no, I I do. Sorry, I do agree on that. Um, those points, and I think what's as as I said, the problem is Starmer has to try and like he has a choice. You can either aim at like you know gaining more seats in the kind of like cities and the kind of more like liberal cities, or you can try and gain more seats in a kind of you know what people would call the red wall, but doesn't really exist anyway. It only came into being in 2019 so he has a choice of that and I think the problem is with Starmer is I think he's trying to aim for the red wall again I think the idea is that they're going to have to try and gain seats there and he seems to I think he seems to have a problem in that it's kind of a bit like he's going back to triangulation like Blair well this is the problem isn't it It, it, it's it's trying to follow the public opinion rather than trying to change it 
Yeah. And I, and I think there's a, a really key role when you're in opposition and you've got four years until the next general election to, to actually try and shape and ch- change the conversation. And I, I think at its best, the Corbyn project did that. It didn't always do it. It didn't do it as much as it needed to. Ultimately. But at its best, that's what it was able to do, I think. No, yeah. So, yeah, no, I don't have any more after that. Yeah. <laughs> And I suppose, really, the question is, what do we want to be a party of? Do we want to be a party of sowing the seeds of division or pandering to people that want to divide people that ultimately have the same issues? They have the same financial problems. They have issues around housing, around healthcare, around education, around getting a job that pays well and pays the bills and is secure. Or do we want to be a party that really ultimately is, is fighting the corner for people that are a victim of, of, of a global system that disadvantages so many. Because lots of the migrants that come to this country, in fact, I, I, I would argue pretty much every single one of them have fundamental issues that people in this country share with them. And we should be fighting that corner. We should be making the right arguments. But I, I fear that certainly some labour circles are scared to make those arguments, the positive arguments for migration, the positive arguments to say that we're all in the same boat, we're all actually fighting the same corner here, but you've just been told by the Daily Mail that these people are here to invade. Well, they're not. They're not here to invade. Uh, Callum, did you want to come in there? All I was going to say really is we can't win on the immigration front with the Tories. It's the ground they want us to uh, fight them on and we won't win if we're trying to out-Tory the Tories, as uh, as Bradley said, so we have to do something different. I just wanted to endorse that point. I would have said more, but I think you summed it up very well, Callum. Brilliant. Okay, so uh, I think we'll move on there. Um, As we see that Labour has had certainly a number of internal debates that have been going on. But there's also been debates over the Atlantic, over the pot. Um, the US election is obviously heating up as we're counting down the last month or so till polling day. Um, we had the debate this week, the first debate, if, if you can call it that. It was, for somebody that watched it the, the day after, it was, uh, well, as I say, it wasn't really a debate. It was uh, Donald Trump being very much a, a shouty man shouting at Biden. Biden not really being able to get a word in, even his two minutes that are meant to be protected so he can say his piece. Well, they, they were interrupted by Trump. Um, did anyone else here watch the watch the debate or at least the highlights? Because I think they give you a, a fairly good taste of how it, how it played out. I've, I've heard a, a few snippets. I, I didn't watch. I didn't put myself through that. Um, but but I've heard enough snippets to, to see what a shower of shite it was. Yeah, he's and, just and you... he's just rude, isn't he, Trump? He's just just yeah. I mean, so some people are saying that it was a he was you know it was a deliberate tactic. He was trying to fluster Biden, and, and I mean, I mean it, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because obviously Biden's got a bit of a rep now for for what's what's the phrase for um, co- cognitive decline? He's in cognitive decline. Um, is is the phrase that people are using? Um, and, and so some people are suggesting that, you know, Trump, Trump sort of did this to, to almost sort of fluster him and, and, and highlight and, and really go in on that attack point. Well, you know, look, look at Biden. He, he was so flustered during the debate. He, can, he can't deal with it. How could he be a president? Blah, blah, blah. 
Um, but I think that's bizarre because, you know, it's not as if Trump is, is an Einstein himself, is it? He, he's quite well known for being a, a bit, you know, not quite all there. So I think I think it's a bit sad, really, that the presidential debate is almost coming down to, to two men that are not quite all there, both quite clearly past their cognitive prime, trying to argue that the other one's actually a, a bit a bit more senile than they are. I think that, that's what the presidential debate seems to come down to at times, and it, it's a bit depressing, really. Yeah, knew and you wanted to come in. Uh, yeah, I will mention a little bit something about um, Biden quickly. Um, a lot of the things that people are seeming to accuse of him being in cognitive decline are probably him actually, because um, from what I read, he actually had a stutter. He's had a stutter for all his life, so a lot of that is probably him just stuttering while it's trying to make speech. It doesn't explain everything, but that probably explains some of them. As for the debate itself, wow, it was a mess. But I think a lot of it was Trump trying to do the same tactics that he did with Hillary. However, there was two problems mainly. One, he was up against Joe Biden, who was a man, which means that he can Joe Biden can quite easily just tell him to shut up. And people go damn, that is leadership, that is, you know, yeah, he's taken, he's taken it to Donald Trump instead of, like, um, instead of, like, if Hillary Clinton would have done it, which probably would have had her being accused of being shrill and, you know, ah, oh, she's just, like, trying to, you know, chat that, you know, demanding to see the manager because people would have said that because um, there are people like that. And secondly, I think it was Donald Trump was basing his performance on the idea that, you know, you can just like batter the opposition and keep them to a standstill, polls wise. If he just batters them with enough, just like gibberish, then like um, he won't lose anymore. He'll just stay the same. However, this is based upon the idea that he's ahead in the polls, but he isn't ahead in the polls. Most of the polls are showing him being behind. So it's a very bad tactic on his front as well, which doesn't really show, you know doesn't show his team, campaign team, doing very well either, that they let him do that instead of actually trying to ch- attack Biden upon more, you know, pressing things. Because Trump can bring the populism. We've seen it before. He can bring, like, you know, a kind of seeming righteous anger that would energise the base. But he didn't do that. Instead, he just kind of was like, no, I'm smart. I do smart things, which uh, probably won't help him in the long run. That's not what his base want. They want to, you know, hear the classic Trump points that he's done before. Yeah. And Ollie, you were, you wanted to react to the uh, debate? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I, I really hope these are kind of desperate last resorts from, from a man who's kind of clearly not relevant anymore. I, I hope, obviously, that Biden wins the election. Um, yeah. I think there's there's been all sorts of conspiracies um, around around Trump and his recent uh, contraction of the virus as well, um, and it's hard to have sympathy for him. It's uh, it's been mixed reactions from 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 liberals, um, whether they're saying well, it he kind of deserves it in some ways uh, because of of his handling of the the pandemic, um, but it's certainly going to have massive implications for the party campaign. I don't know how it will continue in some respects. Callum? A suggestion that um, it might not be entirely truthful that he's actually got COVID 
or um, got it in a, in a in a serious way. Um, there, there, there's a theory, probably a conspiracy theory, but uh, with Trump, who lives on conspiracy theories, what's um, what's to discount it that he wants to do a sort of yeah, but Bolsonaro and say, look at me, I've survived COVID, uh, therefore I'm strong, and get that psychologically in the minds of people. Um, with regards to the debate itself, uh, it's probably not going to change many minds, is it? I mean, um, Donald Trump's whole strategy is about shoring up his base. I think him rabbiting on at, uh, at Joe Biden, you know, it's probably probably not going to change many minds. Um, it does look unpresidential, but then his support his support base doesn't care about that. Um, you know, there was the point where he talked about um, where he was asked to condemn white supremacists as well, um, if we were going to address that. Um, you know, he said he avoided, he was asked to say if they should stand down. He avoided that. He said, uh, stand back and stand by, which obviously we know some of them took as an order. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see I don't see that debate changing very much. Uh, in all honesty, the only positive thing I can take about it is that um, it seems to be a visual representation, almost of uh, something we saw in the uh, Soviet Union. You know, these guys are both in their in their seventies. The whole political class of the United States, or the top echelon of this, is very old. Look at Nancy Pelosi as well. Um, and it reminds me very strongly of the political class of the Soviet Union in its dying days. Um, you know, when they went from uh, through, or they burned through about half a dozen general secretaries in a few years. Um, I think this is all uh, a sign of a declining uh, empire. Um, and once these guys have gone, uh, they will be succeeded by a younger generation who's going to do something different, not necessarily better, but something very different because they can't cling on to forever. And that's the thing about Biden and Trump. They are essentially of the same class, even if they have um, apparently wildly different approaches to politics. Yeah. Uh, Ewan, you wanted to come in? Yeah, no, the comparison to the Soviet Union was um, quite, yeah, I can see that. I've um, I've heard jokes about how, like, Trump at the moment is like the general, um, like one, and- Andropov, where it was like, I think he had, like, got ill, and it was just before he died, and, like, the Soviet Union was going, no, the general secretary is fine, he is alive, he is well, he is having a good time and then almost immediately afterwards they had to say oh no he died but as for trump with covid i think an interesting thing is seeing you can tell not only that he's ill but also that his like entire like rhetoric around the disease has changed almost overnight like it's not gone from oh um like uh oh it's it's fine it's just flu it's just flu it's fine you know you can you know you can inject this thing it'll be fine you know you won't die and then almost immediately he's gone yes no this is a plague um hello everyone uh the team here have been very nice and been very helpful and they've been treating me very well and it's almost like huh 
he's acting nice towards people and he isn't being hyper macho, you know, bossy man. And it's like, yeah, he probably has COVID because <laughs> he's not acting like his usual self and he's seems genuinely quite scared because he is in his 70s. Like, he could die. So, yeah, I, I think this is going to cause all sorts of problems in the next few weeks, if anything. Yeah, Bradley. I, th- I think the thing is, is that tr- Trump will, um, you know, it, it's obviously going to have an impact on his campaign. He, he can't campaign. Uh, it looks like he's taken out some of his, his uh, campaign team as well, with, you know, that are going to have to self-isolate. Um, so I, I, I do think he, he might try and sell, you know, this idea of, of, of uh, you know, some sort of COVID conspiracy has damaged his chances at, at being president. It seems just the sort of thing you could see him tweeting at like 2am in the morning. Um, I, I think the really worrying thing is is some of some of the, the dodgy stuff that Trump says on record. But he's asked if he'll accept the election. Um, you know, he he, you know, if he loses, will, will he accept the election result? And you know, his answers to that are, let's say, ambiguous at best, which is not really what you want to hear. Um, and you know, he he's made sort of coded comments. I think he did it in the debate as well. Um, you know, sort of putting these proud boys on 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 notice you know he's encouraged his supporters to, to make sure things are happening properly at the polling stations which is you know it could in an ungenerous way could be seen as, as encouraging voter intimidation at the, at the polls um, he is he's, he's tried to hold up some extra funding that the postal service wants in the u.s and some people think that's a, an attempt to to reduce the effectiveness of, of getting postal of uh, getting vote you know uh, postal votes out um you know, there's all sorts of things, and obviously he's cast aspersions on the idea of the election already. You know, he's come out with all these sorts of stories of, of all, you know, we, we found a load of Trump ballots in a in a bin somewhere, or you know, all this sort of stuff. So, I, I think there is a real question of what happens on November fourth. Uh, well, I suppose it might not necessarily be straight away, but a couple of days later, um, you know, what if as looks likely, um, Biden wins. Um, what happens next? Uh, you know, wh- what will Trump do next? What will these armed gangs that have attended protests? Um, what what will they do next? That that's what concerns me a little bit. Mm. But we have to only cast our mind back to the twenty sixteen election, where he was saying very similar things about the system being rigged. Uh, long, obviously, the polling didn't look good for him then either. So. He was saying, "Well, if 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 I don't win, then it's a it's a fix. Uh, ballots being stuffed for Hillary, and the same sort of rhetoric is coming out again. It's 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 a tactic because his whole um, sort of mantra, his whole campaigning foundation is 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 on suspicion of the system. It's on draining the swamp. It's on changing." The, the norms of, of, of American society and obviously it's up for debate whether well, he's actually done that and whether he actually is true to his word but what what he, what he campaigns on is about taking apart the system and causing doubt and sowing the seeds of doubt in the in the long-standing politicians the sort of ruling class and he's seen as this outsider again that's up for debate but that's how he, he portrays himself and once again, we're seeing him putting doubt in the electoral system. We're sowing the seeds of 
um, people to to doubt whether the voting system actually delivers a result that's that's important for them. But actually, I think if, if Trump was to really be be worried about how the voting system works, he would be looking to change the uh, the electoral college instead of just sort of saying that it's a uh, a system that's completely uh, weighted against him, and but he's going to fight it anyway and refusing to step down if if uh, if he was to lose, as he may have suggested. So that was the US election, obviously, with, with only a month ago. We'll probably pick up on that again in future podcasts, and hopefully we don't see a civil war ensue in America if Biden was to win, but you never know in these times. So that brings us on to our last point, and that's returning back across the pond and back to Lincoln, plucky Lincoln. Um, the problems don't seem as bad over here, but really I wanted to open up a, a discussion about the future of the city centre post-COVID. Now this follows an announcement from the County Council that they're going to be closing Brayford Wharf East to motor traffic for a year from the 11th of October, and it will only be open to cyclists in, in both directions. Now I thought this was a great idea looking at it. I don't think it goes far enough to it for encouraging cycling. But it really does open up the debate as to whether what what can we do next to ensure that our cities are going to grow in the post-COVID era to be greener, to be more open in their centres, to be more accessible. So I, I really, I just want to open it up to you. I know Bra- um, sorry, Callum has a, has a few things to say about this. Yeah, I've, I mean... I would like to see further pedestrianisation in the centre of Lincoln. Obviously, it has to be mapped properly. Um, and I'm not really party to that data. But the, I think the trend is towards uh, creating more pedestrianisation. I would say I, I would advocate for anything between main roads, so the two, um, the two big flyovers, the one at the Brayford, uh, and the one between Cannock Road and Melville Street, uh, and then north south between Newport Arch and um, uh, Tenscroft Street. Those that is the sort of area that uh, is probably most likely to be increasingly pedestrianised. And I think broadly that's a good thing. Um, I think that there has been a study done on pollution levels on the high street, which is quite. Um, which is going to have some quite supporting evidence of that, as I understand it, although it hasn't published yet. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that'll be good for the city because we can see similar-sized cities in Europe um, where they have pedestrianised their centres uh, and they've put in uh, things like car parks on the outskirts, which we have uh, recently done. Um, I think we need to improve our public transport, though. Obviously, there's discussion about the washing brush station. Um, I think we've uh, discussed it here as well, the possibility of putting another station when the Western Growth Corridor is uh, put in place, uh, particularly near where the new stadium is going to be. Um, All of this uh, has to happen um, around the same time. Of course, it will probably cause disruption and people will complain about it. But uh, it's, uh, I think it, it's, uh, it's got to be done if we're going to uh, reduce carbon emissions in the city and create a healthier atmosphere for our citizens. Absolutely. Ewan? Uh, yeah, no, that's, 
I think pedestrianisation is a way forward in general for like towns and cities across the UK. Um, it also would help the um, high street out, which a lot of people have been talking about how like um, high street's been like dying in Britain because a lot of people are going to cities now. So pedestrianising it would be good. Um, and from a kind of left wing perspective on this, uh, cycling has a very kind of weirdly long tradition in British socialism as being a very kind of like influential part. Like um, early socialists had things like the uh, Clarion, Clarion Cycling Club, which was like a socialist left wing paper. And they had a cycling club with it because they believed that cycling was the best way for working class and middle class people to get around because it was bikes were inexpensive compared to like, you know, cars and carriages and things like that. So I think if we stop promoting those ideas again, like how, you know, start, because you can still get bikes quite easily, you know, it's cheaper than a car. You don't have to pay insurance on a bike. So if you pedestrianize it, but also promote cycling as well, um, in place, you know, similar in a kind of way that you have for the Netherlands, um, it could be a very good way to like, I'd probably say liberate transportation as it were, because it means that more people can go further and have more opportunities, and also the green impact is also means that you know less pollution as well. So cycling and pedestrianisation has more than just you know it's not just oh, now we can sit out outside in the veranda, well, you know, in the street and have a cup of tea, which means there's more opportunities, more things that can come from that. Absolutely. And I think that really opening up city centres to be better for pedestrians and cycling is, is can only really be seen as a positive, not just for the environment, but the area is nicer if you haven't got HGVs and buses and cars flying by while you're doing your shopping. I think it encourages people to come into the town centre as well. It's a nicer place to be. You're not breathing in the fumes. But obviously, with that comes sizable investment. We need to remember that we do need a commitment from local government and national government to fund this. And I know that the uh, this trial scheme starting in October for this, this road closure for cycles only is, is a is by a, by a pot that central government has set up and a number of other towns and cities um, across the region will also be benefiting from it. But I think that it's going to take a lot more money to make cycling safe. We've got to segregate it. We've got to make sure that it's safe to cycle on our roads and where we can't segregate it, make the road surfaces a lot safer to ride on. I think that also, I think workplaces should be encouraged to have more cycle to work schemes where people can get a good quality bike that's part funded out of their wages or subsidized by their employer. And also I think it only serves when the employer looks at it, if they have a healthier workforce because they're cycling into work, that's only a good thing as well. I think that maybe a really we've got to look at ourselves and say, what do we want from the future? What do we want our towns and city centres to look like? And in Lincoln, I'd love that to be a cycling and public transport-led revolution where we see people from local villages and towns being able to commute in by bus or bike, where we see train services made more regular and reliable with smaller stops being serviced again. 
I think that that's only a positive for us going forward. Nolly, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think what you're talking about there is uh, is fantastic. That sounds wonderful, really. Um, I, I'm fortunate enough to to have a workplace which has uh, kind of facilities for bikes, and they have a shower to encourage people to uh, to kind of cycle to work, which is which is great. I think I think it'd be great to see more employers um, using uh, initiatives like that. I think it's interesting. You um, and uh, brought up about the the history of cycling and and its roots in. In, in a sense of kind of community and, and in socialism, I think um, it's widely regarded cycling as a, a thing of the past. But I think more than ever, I think we need now to to uh, expand the amount of um, cycle initiatives which are going on, um, because as the as the kind of the traditional kind of combustion engine is phased out and there are more um, zero carbon. Uh, policies by countries, especially across Europe, but across the entire world, I think people are going to take a look at how they're getting around more, and they're they're going to be wanting to rely on public transport more, and they're going to be wanting to um, well consider maybe getting a bicycle and seeing how how viable that is. So uh, I think these are very 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 interesting ideas. Yes, you and you wanted to come back. Yeah, no, I I agree with everything that Ollie just said. Like. You know, allowing not only is cycling makes people healthier, but also it's um, good for like mental health as well. Because being outside, it's like walking is also good for mental health. Um, which I think due to COVID, uh, we've had to look at more and more about like mental health and how people react to things. Um, so I think if we increase cycling, and I think also if we do better, like higher cycling schemes why not um so you know you can in certain cities you can rent bicycles um for like a period of time i think if we did that better if we did it more like um kind of european cities like the netherlands i think if we um try because like amsterdam is a good example amsterdam was not always pedestrianized like you look at it back in like the 70s and 80s they like heavily were full of cars and stuff and then the, I think it was the Amsterdam like city council, whatever, invested massively in pedestrianising the area, increasing like saying that people should be cycling more. And now, like, and it's such a recent thing, like you know, everyone has this stereotype of all the Dutch are like riding bicycles everywhere, but it's very recent. Like, it was very kind of like a government kind of pushed effort to not only increase cycling, but also like to reduce the amount of cars in city centres and to like make them safer for tourists but also safer like the people that live there so i think essentially what we should try and do is we should borrow ideas from the dutch in terms of cycling and pedestrianization because they seem to know how to do it (laughs) absolutely and uh i suppose another thing that i know the government has fast-tracked is is the trial of electric scooters i'm sure you've seen them whizzing around yes um towns and city centres. Uh, I've never had a go on one. Um, they look particularly scary. But obviously, if, if they could be um, made legal and properly regulated, then I think that, that is also a positive because a lot of people have them already. So if we can find any any means possible to take r- r- cars off the roads in Lincoln and other towns and cities, then that's only a positive, I think. And I think really we've got to be looking at all these alternative methods that are appearing 
at the moment, such as the the, the electric scooters and indeed um, cycling and making it affordable for all. Ewan? Uh, I just wanted to say one last thing as well. Um, I said mentioned about the kind of clarion um, cycling clubs earlier, and I think left-wing organisations should probably also be looking at like cycling and organising cycling clubs and making sure that people um, people who may not be able to get bicycles um, and would probably like to have bicycles or you know tricycles or whatever um, can get them because the Clarion Cycling Clubs were kind of a combination of well we want more people to cycle so they can you know live better lives but also they can like get to jobs that they couldn't get to before but also it was a political education thing it was allowed you know they taught people ideas of socialism and it was I think it was um like partially corporatized as well so I think I think the left wing should be I, I know this all sounds very kind of like odd that you know the left wing should be looking at like rebuilding kind of like cycling as an idea and as as an ideal but like if we do that we could probably actually have not only a healthier population but also a um like healthier in both body and also mind but also means that more people have more opportunities to get jobs that they couldn't get before it means that we have less pollution which is you know something that socialists particularly these days are trying to look forward to so really i think pedestrianization but also cycling should be major ideas that the left should be looking at more we don't talk about a lot because they're pretty uncontroversial but they behind the uncontroversialness we can bring across things that we wouldn't be able to bring across otherwise yes Callum. yeah i'm going to say something very boring by comparison to all the visionary stuff that we've been talking about which is that if you're going to have all of these uh, electric scooters that people use um someone needs to fix those goddamn potholes uh, <laughs> yeah you know it's it's still i mean all politics is local right you know, it's uh, and 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 this is one of those things because you can have uh, grand ideals of of everyone travelling around in electric cars, electric scooters, whatever. It's no good if you can't if they haven't got roads to run on. Um, and uh, and you know that we know that the county council has the money to do it, and they can't be bothered. And of course, the other thing as well is buses. Um, increasingly these days, you know, the population of Lincoln doubles during a normal workday. Uh, increasingly people uh, commute in, which is a bit of a throwback actually to the 19th century um, before all of the big housing estates were built in Lincoln. Um, So a lot of people commute in. That means they, at the moment, they rely on cars. Even if they switch to electric, they'll probably rely on electric cars or scooters if we persuade them to do that. Um, But they will do that less and less if we have cheaper buses that don't cost um, almost an hourly wage um, or a half an hour's wage just to get to town and back every day um, and then you use uh, maybe another hour's wage to buy lunch um, This uh, so at the moment it's much cheaper to use your polluting car especially in the context of Covid but um, so when the Covid pandemic is finished what we need is decent roads, decent buses and then we can also think about electric scooters. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that that really is is a vision for the future. And hopefully the county council get the message 
Um, as I say, as I said at the start of this segment, really they were uh, addressing it in to some extent. They can clearly see there's an issue, but I, I just fear that this is just a token gesture um, that they think that people will take as them being the Green Council of Lincolnshire. Um, Bradley, just just a, a lot of question for you. Um, I know you you currently uh, you currently commute into uh, into Ipswich when you have to, but if you if your employer, say if you lived in the town, offered you a, a cycling scheme or something like that, would you take it up to get into work? Yeah, d- yeah, obviously, yeah. I would I wouldn't uh, cycle and link into Ipswich, but but yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, certainly if I if I was working in the city, I, I think it'd be a great idea. Although, given that I live on Linden Road, I, I don't fancy going up going up the hill on, on a bike actually and it's, it's going down it will be a lot easier going down it in the morning would be great but coming back after work in the evening up it would, would perhaps not be so great um i actually people <laughs> doing it and i think fair place to them if they get to the top a lot of people don't make it to the top i have to say um but no I, I think i think it would be a great idea and i think you know the thing is the clock's ticking on climate change and and there, there's no one single answer is there um, so we, we've got to be doing hundreds of things like this um, and we need to be doing it now. So, so yeah, I think it's a great idea. Brilliant. Uh, Callum, you wanted to come in? I, I was just going to say, um, if you wanted to ride from uh, Ipswich to Lincoln, I'd be quite happy to join you. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, it would take quite a while, I think. <laughs> Maybe not on one day, but there's, there's quite a lot of nice countryside. So anyway, yeah. just thought. <laughs> I mean, the the views would be fantastic, yeah. When I go through on the train, it, it's a l- lovely countryside out around near, near Ipswich. But um, yeah, I, I went yeah, through it, it by accident once on the train. It was uh, it was quite nice. Uh, yeah, it, I think it it would probably take a, a few days to do it. But yeah, why not? There we go. So when we can meet up, there's five of us here, so that doesn't break the rule of six. It looks like we can do a uh, pod excursion to Ipswich by bike. And on that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for listening uh, we've had Ollie Well win thank you Ollie thanks everyone stay safe we've had Ewan Hodgson uh, thank you for having me on as usual uh, well yeah <laughs> <laughs> we had Callum Watt thank you very much for having me I'll see you next time and Bradley Allsop yeah thanks folks stay safe thank you all for listening and stay safe and obviously keep an eye on the news and we'll be back very shortly.